This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow. Delivered today. In the legislation that would authorize this war memorial, I would have a provision to that at its bottom, wherever that last name was, there would be a desk and a pen. And by law, that pen would be the only pen by which the President of the United States could sign a deployment order for troops. And so he or she would have to come down whenever they wanted to send troops to a new country. They'd have to sign it right there at that desk after having walked by all of the names of America's war dead, and that would be our single American war memorial. Elliot Ackerman is a former United States Marine, a former CIA paramilitary officer, a journalist, a novelist, and the author of an amazing new book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. He joins us today to talk about that book, and we'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Micah Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. You'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, Elliot, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on your new book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. It hit the bookstores last month. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Elliot, I want to start by saying that a good friend of mine told me about your book a couple of weeks ago, and I ordered it. I sat down on a Sunday morning to start reading, and I finished it in one sitting. The book is that compelling. I'll go even further and say that I think The Fifth Act is among the best books about war that I've ever read. You know, a list of the powerful stories that it tells and 
the images and the emotions that it evokes, you know, is is pages long for me. So my high bar, and just so you know, for for war books has always been Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. And for me, the fifth act is very, very close to that bar. So, you know, huge congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. So um, enough of the platitudes. Let me let me kick off by asking you what the book is about. Obviously, America's End in Afghanistan. But how do you tell the story, explain the structure to the listeners? Well, you know, obviously, that, the structure is implied in, in, in the, the title of the book. The genesis of that title or its, its inception was, was during those chaotic two weeks around the fall of Kabul last year. And in addition to being a novelist, I also work as a journalist, and a friend of mine reached out and asked if I would contribute 500 words to a series of sort of quick essays she was gathering about the end of Afghanistan. And when confronted with this idea of trying to, you know, summarize 20 years of war in 500 words, I was saying sort of, you know, how could I, how can I plausibly do this? And she just sort of sighed and said, you know, people haven't been paying attention for a long time and they see what's happening and they don't understand it. They just know that it's a tragedy. And it was her use of that word tragedy that got me thinking just of a, a structure how to you know how do you wrap your heads around this 20 year war and if you look at tragedies you know back from shakespeare and you know even before to the ancients tragedies are, are typically told in five acts and so with that scaffolding you know the five acts being the presidencies of bush obama trump biden and then this fifth act the sort of you know the denouement which is the taliban that at least gave me a way to think about things politically. And then um, I sort of, you know, wrote my 500-word essay and then found myself like, you know, like so many others, sucked into this, you know, two to three-week-long crowdsourced evacuation from Afghanistan as our, as our allies were desperately reaching out for help. And so the book is also tells the story of really five distinct evacuations that I was involved in. Uh, all five had, had different outcomes, some good, some not as good. And then the just sort of the last component of the book, thematically speaking for me was, you know, kind of running through all of this uh, was this sort of thematic undercurrent, which is as everyone was sort of struggling to get people out and to try to, you know, make good in these frantic three weeks, what it seemed like we were all trying to make good on was this concept that you know w- you know any of us who served are very familiar with this concept of you know what does it mean to leave no one behind what does it mean to live up to that ideal and we were all in those days trying to live up to some semblance of that ideal knowing that we weren't going to knowing full well that many people were going to be left behind but trying to trying to to live up to it and it's you know again it's an ideal that is not unique to the U.S. military, you know, it's really one that is as old as war. You go all the way back to, you know, to the Iliad and, I mean, Homer, you know, how does the Iliad end? One of the final scenes in the Iliad is after Achilles kills Hector, he drags Hector's mangled body back to his camp and, you know, King Priam of the Trojans sneaks into Achilles' camp and begs for the body of his son. And, you know, why does he do this? Well, because we don't leave anyone behind. 
And so that that theme was just, I think, for me, very it was just very present in this effort to get our Afghan allies out. And I wanted to also reach back in the book into my own past and sort of wrestle with a time when I was fighting in Afghanistan where I questioned whether or not I had made good on that ideal of leaving no one behind, specifically an ambush that I was involved in with one of my comrades was killed. And we had a very hard time getting his body back because that memory during the end of the Afghan war kind of really resurfaced for me. And if I was going to tell the story of what the end of the Afghan war was like, I also needed to tell that story as well because it was just so present in my consciousness. Those ideas are sort of the ideas that are, are in the book. It's the shape of the book. So, Elliot, you're sharply critical of a number of policy decisions related to or that affected the course of the Afghan war and its end. And each of the last four administrations share the blame and the way you tell the story. And all of those resonated with me, by the way. And I'm wondering what you would label as, you know, key mistake of each of those four administrations. How do you think about that? Well, I would, you know, I would say up front that I, I think that we're talking, you know, we're talking about a 20-year war waged across four presidential administrations of two parties. So it would be it would be a tragedy as we look back and reflect on Afghanistan if any of this sort of bogged down in the types of partisan recriminations that are sort of you know de rigueur in American political life. So that you know that is by no means what I'm doing, trying to go through. Great point. So, but you know I think if we if we look back at the beginning of the war and the Bush administration, you know two obvious strategic mistakes you know, were likely, or I would say, you know, where you can imagine a different outcome to the war would have been if obviously we got in bin Laden very early on. I wouldn't say that's a strategic mistake. It's just an opportunity missed because that would have changed particularly the emotional stakes of the war. It would have been far easier right. for us to say we accomplished the mission if within nine months of 9-11, Osama bin Laden was dead. Um, but that didn't happen. I think very early on in the Bush administration and just in, a, the, in our American psyche, there is a conflation between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, which affects our strategic thinking later down the road. These are two groups that are, are not the same. You know, they are obviously allied with one another, but they do have different objectives with Afghanistan. I think that conflation made it very difficult for us in 2002 or 2003 as the Afghan government was standing up to imagine or even want to engage in policies in which we could have co-opted elements of the Taliban and made the Taliban not quite so fertile for co-option by the Pakistanis, which becomes a real problem for us later. And then the most obvious one, too, is is in the Bush administration, the decision to invade Iraq. That decision is made at a time when things seem as though they are going well in Afghanistan, but we critically take our eyes off the ball. We go invade Iraq. And really not until the Obama administration is Afghanistan once again resourced in the way that it should have been resourced five years before. I think, you know, when we look at the strategic mistake of the Obama administration, it's the nature of the surge. And, you know, he gives a speech in 2009 at West Point announcing that surge. And in the same speech that he announces the surge, he also announces the date of the withdrawal, undercutting the surge. And so, you know, that is the key strategic mistake of the o Obama administration. It's, it's, a, it's a surge that never really has the legs that it needs because we are always, we're always about to leave Afghanistan. 
And I think if we look at the Trump administration, it is the, the, the decision made around the Doha agreement, the decision to negotiate directly with the Taliban and to cut out our Afghan partners in a way that, that undercuts the Afghan government and that administration. You know, a flawed administration, not without its problems, but we certainly precipitated its decline by negotiating unilaterally with the Taliban. And then if we look at the Biden administration, I think, you know, the strategic mistake in the Biden administration is continuing the policies of the Trump administration. And then the mistake that's made, the mistake, the series of mistakes that are made between April of 2021, the announcement of the withdrawal, and then the way that we see Afghanistan's end game, at least for for NATO, uh, which is the you know the collapse at Hkaya, and with the the Biden administration, to me it seems so much of this is 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 captured in a strategic just miscalculation. There was a belief that there would be a decent interval between the withdrawal of U.S. forces and whatever the end game was going to be between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban, and when that decent interval didn't occur and we didn't get it, there was no contingency plan in place. So, Elliot, what I'd love to do is I'd love to pick up some points from the narrative of the book and ask you about them. And the first that comes to mind for me is for you personally, what ties together two parts of the book? You know, one is your time spent fighting and advising in Afghanistan. And the second is your family vacation, right, in August of 2021. What links those for you? What binds them together for you? I know that's a tough question. No, yeah, it's an, it's an important question. So, you know, if a reader picks up the book, they'll note that the, you know, the book toggles around quite a bit in time. So the chapters will go from scenes in Afghanistan of combat in 2008 to the summer of 2021. And when the, the fall of Kabul happens and this evacuation is taking place, I happen to be on a long planned family holiday with my wife and our four children in, in Italy, of all places, which is about as far away from Afghanistan as you can get. And the reason it felt important to me to make those scenes of my family's vacation as, as vivid as any scenes in the war is because I wanted to show the, the psychic dislocation that I was experiencing, which I imagine, you know, many of my, you know, colleagues, like, Comrades of mine, you know, veterans, journalists, others were experiencing as the war ended. And it was this, you know, very much this sense of because the evacuation, so much of it was ending in this crowdsourced ad hoc way, many of us were psychologically being, you know, sucked back to a war we had thought we'd left a long time ago into where into where we were 10 years ago. And that has a real personal impact too. For me, you know, my wife didn't know me during the wars. My children didn't know me during the wars, and they were given sort of just this brief window into what my life might have been like back then. But then also seeing friends of ours who existed in our social life, you know, sort of my children's, you know, uncles, you know, who they know daddy was in the Marines or at CIA with them, but they never had seen them in this light. And for a brief window, they were able to see it. And I wanted to show how that affects a family. I found the the parable that Sherry Weston, the president of Sesame Street Workshop, sent to you in an email to be really powerful. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that in the context for why she shared that with you, and, and then if you can actually share the parable with us. Sherry's a, a remarkable woman, and I think 
one of the reasons I very much wanted to write about her too was, you know, this was not only an effort that was containing, you know, military members and veterans. There were, you know, many other people who had been involved in Afghanistan and many of whom brought in sort of a, I would say, a, a different and in some way refreshingly non-cynical view of the country. And I, and I just bring that up because sometimes as a I think just, I'll speak for myself, but as a veteran, you could feel a little bit just beaten down by trying to see something good out of Afghanistan. And so with regards to Sherry, who had been very active in launching Sesame Street programming that was very popular in Afghanistan, programming that was targeted uh, at children, but also young girls, you know, she was seeing all of those efforts collapse as well. And as we were trying to get people out, she sent me the, this parable. And it's, it's basically the story of a, um, a, an old man is, is walking down a beach and the beach is littered with starfish that have washed up on the high tide. But now that it's low tide, they're stranded in the sand. And this child is running around picking up the starfish and throwing them one at a time back into the ocean. And the old man basically says, you know, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm trying to I'm trying to save these starfish. The old man looks down the beach and sees that there's thousands of them littering the beach. And he said, there's no way you can possibly, you know, save these starfish or make any type of difference, you know, for them. And the little boy reaches down and he picks up one starfish, throws it in the oceans and says, you know, I made a difference for that one. And Sherry just told me that story at a particularly tough moment when it seemed like there was no way to make any type of meaningful dif difference you know, sneaking Afghans into the airport in batches of, you know, two to six to when it trickled down to almost nobody. Yeah. You know, what struck me when I read that was that, of course, Sherry's right about, you know, aid work in general and then what you were particularly doing at that moment. But it's not true of war, right, where there needs to be a clear strategic objective with a well-defined approach to deliver a strategic gain. So that that struck me as well in reading that parable. You know, I think it's very tough in war to sort of hold these two ideas in your mind at the same time. The one being often the sense of futility one can have about the larger mission, um, the strategic mission, if it's going well, if it's, you know, if it's a fundamentally sound concept that can often get really muddy. And, and muddled in, in the way that it did in Afghanistan over many, many years. So you, in one side of your brain, you're holding, you know, you're, you, you know that there's this broader strategic mission that you're fighting the war over, but then you're also fighting for these very specific reasons. When I was served in uniform, right, it was, it was for, my, for my friends, the guys on my team, our very specific tactical mission. And how do you sort of reconcile those two? It's, right. well, it's a, right. I think I've always thought it's sort of a profound question. going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Elliot. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
So you've talked, you've referenced this earlier, Elliot, but there's a point in the story where you're in command of an operation and you have to make a very tough decision. Absolutely no doubt in my mind that you made the right decision, but it required disobeying a direct order. And I want you to talk a little bit more about the incident and what happened. And then I'm you talked a little bit how, how it fit the broader story, but I'm wondering if it's a metaphor for anything else in the war as well. The incident I write about in the book was my special operations teams when I served in the Marine Corps, along with our, our Afghan partners who are Afghan commandos, were ambushed in a town in Western Afghanistan. One of our team members was, was killed in that ambush. The Humvee he was in took a direct hit. Uh, it had a lot of ammunition in the back. It, it lit on fire. And we, coming out of that ambush as a team, were, you know, were, were pretty bloodied. And about every one of our vehicles was towing another vehicle. And we weren't in a good position to go back and recover his body, though we were ordered to go back and recover his body. And so I had a disagreement with someone senior to me in the chain of command about whether or not that was the right thing to do. My assessment was that if we went back to try to get his body, certainly some of us were going to get hurt. You know, I thought likely someone else was going to get killed. But I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that even today, I very much wish there was a narrative, a world that existed where we all got back in the trucks and we were the ones that went and got him out. And uh, But that wasn't the decision that was made. Ultimately, that night, another team, our sister team, in fact, was able to come back. They were, they were rested in at full strength and they were able to get his body out. But I've often thought about, you know, the, I was the mission commander, so it was ultimately the decision I made to say that we weren't going to go get him out. And that, it's something I'd thought about for years. And then as this evacuation was occurring in Afghanistan, it was a decision I started thinking about a lot more. And um, because so much of what we were trying to do was in the spirit of not leaving people behind. And it's this question is, what, is it, what does it mean to fulfill that moral obligation? And... There's no easy answer on that, and I think every single one of us who's participated in the war to some degree or another asks whether or not we fulfilled our moral obligations. A little essay on the perceptions that that we all have of millennials, and you, it's a great little essay on how that perception fits or does not fit, right, with the 20 years of war in Afghanistan and the all and the all-volunteer army. Can you share that with us? You know, I think people often forget that America's longest war was fought by millennials who, who volunteered. So this perception of all millennials being, you know, superficial, lazy, doesn't necessarily hold true. But I think it's also important to keep what I just said in conversation with the fact that unlike many of America's, most of America's prior wars, the Vietnam War, the Second World War, the First World War, you know, those wars were generationally defining events. My parents are, are of the Vietnam generation, the greatest generation from World War II, the lost generation from the First World War. The, the War on Terror was not a generationally defining event. Um, it did not define the millennial generation or Gen X, you know, who are the, probably the two generations that did most of the fighting in these wars. And I've, you know, I've often thought, it would sort of be nice to be part of a, a generation that was defined by its war, to be, you know, part of the lost generation, for instance. And I've never felt like I was part of the lost generation. 
um, I have always felt like I was sort of the lost part of a generation and that these wars were a very specific experience by a certain segment of our generation. Uh, and I think that is something that that is concerning in American life, that wars are no longer experienced generationally. They should be. They, they certainly merit that. So I was really struck by your observation that Afghanistan and Iraq, for that matter, were wars that the American public in general did not have to pay for. Can you walk us through that narrative and then talk about its consequences, talk about why that matters? I think this is profound. Michael, every, every war that America has fought since the revolution has needed a, a construct to sustain it and, and to sustain it, broadly speaking, in two terms, right? Blood, who's going to fight the war, and treasure, how are we going to pay for it? So, for instance, you know, the American Civil War, uh, the first draft in the United States is a byproduct of the American Civil War. There's the blood. And the first income tax in the United States is also a byproduct of the American Civil War. We look at the, the Second World War. That's a war characterized by uh, war bond drives and a national mobilization. We look at the Vietnam War. Uh, there's a very unpopular draft in that war, which eventually leads to an anti-war movement that ends the war. So when 9-11 occurs and America, again, mobilizes to go to war, it needs a construct to sustain this war on terror. So what is the construct? Well, the construct is the blood comes from our all-volunteer military. And the treasure is our national deficit. We put the cost of the wars on our national credit card. If you look at the deficit today, about a quarter of our national deficit is the bill for the wars on terror. And if you look, the last year the United States passed a balanced budget was in 2001, which is not a coincidence. But the result of this construct, uh, the all-volunteer military and a war paid through our deficit where there's no war tax, is that the American people are anesthetized to the cost of war. And as a society, you know, if, if to me there's one, you know, if there's one lesson to take out of the war on terror that is really unique to this war, because there are many lessons that, you know, that rhyme with other wars and we can make comparisons to Vietnam. But if there's one that's really pretty unique, it's the way our country has fought these wars. And we should ask ourselves going forward, because there will certainly be another war, you know, is this the right construct for our country? Or does it lead us into very complicated and I would argue negative moral waters. And I think, I think it does. It's concerning for a democracy to wage war this way. And you also talk about the implication, right, of kind of the separation of those who, who actually fought in the war from the rest of society, which I think is also important. Well, and, and it's because the construct by which we fight the war in which the American people are anesthetized to the cost of the war obviously creates a civil military divide. And, you know, as we we're talking about before, you know, these wars weren't generationally defining, but they certainly defined my life and the, and the lives of my many you know, friends who, who fought these wars alongside me. But that creates a massive divide in our country. And so, you know, we should sit here at the end of these wars and ask sort of what is the state of play, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. military and the society it serves after 20 years of a forever war. And to me, it's very concerning. You know, the state of play right now in the United States is you have a large standing military and you have a country that has extremely dysfunctional internal politics. And if we look back in history from Caesar's Rome 
to Napoleon's France when you combine dysfunctional domestic politics and a large standing military, democracy doesn't last long. At the end of the war in Afghanistan, you know, there were certain, there are certain flashpoint moments. And I, you know, I write a little bit about someone named Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, who made some very strong statements in uniform about the way the war ended. There are some of these moments that I just found very concerning as a citizen to watch, where you could see that type of resentment in the military bubbling up, not everywhere, but you could see it bubbling up in ways that were alarming and I think should alarm all citizens. But again, another option of the civil military divide is too few citizens are fluent in the culture of the US military. So you can have these developments occurring in the military, but everyday citizens don't necessarily know what they mean. You know, they don't know the difference between a retired lieutenant colonel saying something or an active duty one saying it. The same thing with retired flag officers speaking on CNN versus active duty ones. Um, and because there isn't that fluency, it makes us even more susceptible to the military sort of playing a, a concerning role in our dysfunctional domestic politics. I have to tell you, when I when I read that part of the book, I I thought very hard about my own role, right, as a former intelligence officer, talking about domestic politics over the last several years. I mean, it really it really got my attention. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more intelligence matters. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Elliot, you mentioned Vietnam a minute ago. I wonder if you could share, in your view, the, the similarities, the differences between Afghanistan and Vietnam. Well, I think, you know, we can I mean, we can certainly talk about the, you know, the strategic similarities that exist. We talked a little bit before about the the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. You know, I think there is an analogy one can make between Vietnam and Afghanistan with that regard in so much as, you know, in Vietnam, you know, we all know the history that Vietnam was fought because of domino theory and our belief at the time that we couldn't afford to allow Vietnam to become communist because that would allow the spread of transnational communism, which was a threat to the United States. But in hindsight, we have since recognized that, yes, although the North Vietnamese were communist, 
for the Vietnamese, this wasn't a war of international communism. It was a war of national liberation. And we as Americans didn't understand that soon enough. And it's one of the reasons we lost the war is because we didn't understand who we were fighting against. You know, I would argue in Afghanistan, the conflation of the Taliban with Al Qaeda very early on, you know, for Al Qaeda, you know, this was obviously a war of transnational terrorism, international terrorism, uh, and for the Taliban, although they were sympathetic to Al Qaeda's goals, much more central was this is a war of national liberation for Afghans. So, you know, that's an area where there's political overlap. Sort of on a, you know, on a personal note, I very much grew up in the, the shadow of the Vietnam War. So as I was in my teens and 20s heading into a career in the military trying to understand what war was, I looked back at the Vietnam generation and feel very fortunate that I, I, I know and count a number of Vietnam veterans to be, to be friends and to have been mentors to me as I grew up and came through the ranks. However, I always did notice a little bit of a schism that existed at least that I perceive between my generation of veterans and the Vietnam veterans. And I would sort of characterize it as I always felt they they looked at us with a little bit of skepticism and sort of like, you know, what's wrong with you guys? Why do you keep volunteering for these wars that go on and on and on? Because a number of them were draftees or if they weren't draftees, they were serving in the context of a drafted military. So that was sort of a schism that I felt existed. And I frankly felt they were much more disillusioned than my generation of veterans were. And I always concluded this was because, you know, these are people who grew up in the 1950s, an, an era where there were lots of illusions about America. And that because I didn't grow up in an era with so many illusions, I therefore wasn't as disillusioned when I saw the ugly side of war. Last summer, as Afghanistan collapsed, a sort of a what felt to me like a profound realization was I realized that my entire relationship with the Vietnam vets had been misinformed. I'd been wrong about my diagnosis of what that schism was. The schism wasn't the skepticism that they had toward our generation of veterans being volunteers. And it wasn't, and they weren't more disillusioned because they grew up in the 1950s. The difference between my generation of veterans for such a long time and the Vietnam guys was the Vietnam guys had seen the end and we hadn't seen the end yet. Yes, we've been fighting over 20 years, but we hadn't seen the end of the war. And what they knew and what I feel like I learned at the end of seeing how Afghanistan ended was they knew there was a betrayal coming and we hadn't come to it yet. And so the, the distance between us, you know, was really they understood something I didn't understand, which is how this thing was eventually going to end. And I have since looked at my relationship with a number of Vietnam veterans very, very differently than I had once before. So, Elliot, one last question. Can you share with us your image? You actually have a drawing in the book. Your image of what, of what a war memorial in Washington, D.C. should look like and why? One of the things that's unique about the, the war on terror is even as the Afghan war has ended, the war on terror goes on. And recently, Congress passed a legislation to authorize the Global War on Terrorism Memorial. And it poses an interesting question. One of the challenges in passing the legislation was they had to be exemptions because you are typically not allowed to create a war memorial to a war that is ongoing. But we have done that in the Global War on Terrorism Memorial, although it has not been designed nor built yet. And so it asks, poses this question, how do you create a memorial 
to a war that hasn't finished yet and may not finish in the near future. And so it's, it caused me just to think about war memorials in the National Mall. And one thing I didn't realize is that the proliferation of war memorials on our National Mall is actually a relatively recent occurrence that the first war, real war memorial that we see on the mall is actually the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which opens on the mall in the early 1980s. We've since seen you know, the, the Korean War Memorial, the Second World War Memorial. And it begs this question, is, you know, should our National Mall become littered with war memorials? Is that what we should be honoring? And so as I was thinking about that question, about the global war on terrorism memorial and the politics that go into where do you place these memorials, I sort of came to the conclusion that, you know, what I would like to see if I had all of the power in the world for a day would be sort of the elimination of all of these different war memorials and the creation of a single war memorial. I would call it the, the American War Memorial. And in my vision of it, it would sort of look a little bit like the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and that it would begin with a, a black granite wall that, that slopes downward. Except in my mind, it would sort of begin to spiral downward, almost like, like something out of Dante. And on that wall would be the names of all of America's war dead, more than a million, chronologically listed, to begin with Crispus Attucks, a free black man killed at the Boston Massacre. And it would continue to, to descend downward. And as we fought wars, we would no longer have to have these debates about what the war memorial would be because we would just add to the names. And I think digging down is appropriate because, again, we wouldn't have to debate, you know, whose war memorial gets in the way of whose. And one thing you learn how to do in the military is to dig. And so we would just add the names and add the names. And then in the legislation that would authorize this war memorial, I would have a provision to that at its bottom, wherever that last name was, there would be a desk and a pen. And by law, that pen would be the only pen by which the president of the United States could sign a deployment order for troops. And so he or she would have to come down whenever they wanted to send troops to a new country. And they'd have to sign it right there at that desk after having walked by all of the names of America's war dead. And that would be our single American war memorial. The book is The Fifth Act. America's End in Afghanistan. The author is Elliot Ackerman. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Elliot Ackerman. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.